Welcome to Documentary First, an inside look at a first-time filmmaker's journey. I'm your host, Josh Lindsay from the Movie Proposal Podcast, and with us is our first-time filmmaker, Christian Taylor. Hello, Josh. How I'm are good, you Christian. Today? How are you? Super happy to be here and happy to be back home in my own little office. Last time you were in a bed and breakfast, correct? I was. I was in Dubuque, Iowa. Dubuque is fun to say. Uh, and uh, also with us is, we couldn't do without him, the awesome Jason Rugg. Hey there. He's got a real beard. And uh, I just learned today you, you're a runner. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. I, I try to at least walk a 5K even in the winter every day. And then I try to run a 5K by the end of summer. So... You mean like collectively, like you'll run like, you know, quarter of a 5K one week and then you'll add to it the next week. And then is that what you're saying? <laughs> no, like every, every day I try to I try to do oh, a 5K wow. in some way, in okay, some way. Good for you. It's uh, yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah. And, and it works, you know, until, you know, birds poop on you, apparently. <laughs> I, <laughs> yes, that I wasn't going to bring that up. But <laughs> <laughs> About a half hour ago, my day was ruined. <laughs> At least your jacket was, or your shirt was, anyway. (laughs) It's in the washer right now. (laughs) And with us all the way from France, visiting us again, is the Girl Who Wore Freedom translator, producer extraordinaire, Michelle. Thank you for being with us again. Thanks for having me back. It's good to be here. Well, it was because you... You you sang high praises (laughs) of Christian at the very end, and she's like, we got to have her back, so... (laughs) Smart move on your part, Michelle. Smart. (laughs) <laughs> Job security. All right. Before we jump in to learn more about translations and because there is so much more to the world of translating than anyone ever realized, Christian, what updates do you have for us? Well, yes. I mean, I think I remember saying the last time I did not expect to win anything at the Julian Dubuque International Film Festival, otherwise known affectionately as JDIF. But how wrong Whoa. I was! Look at this. You actually have a trophy there. I do, I do. Look at this. It says "Best Documentary." What's it? Now it's hard to see uh, on the screen. It looks like a person holding it hang- up. Is that right? It is. It's a person. It's a. This is a handcrafted. Um, uh, metal sculpture of a person holding up a film. Um, kind of clip or what do you call this? A film? I don't have any idea. Film strip. There we go. Strip. A film strip. Uh, set on a wooden base, and uh, it is um, it's pretty cool, and I'm incredibly grateful to have it in my possession. It was a really tough competition. There were five amazing documentaries at JDIF this year, and so I just I honestly did not. Uh, expect to win the more um incredible thing is not only do they get this is the first time this has happened not only do they give you a trophy but they also give you a four thousand dollar whoa so that was mind-blowing i was so excited afterwards i was shaking and crying and i the person that was giving me my check was like you know people come off and they don't really know what to say but we've never had anybody cry (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well they oh, probably like, had well, people cry who didn't win <laughs> <laughs> probably probably but uh anyway so 
So yeah, that was very exciting. And I have to say, it was one of the most unbelievable experiences I have had. Um, it certainly is tied with um, Beaufort Film Festival in South Carolina. Um, they both have this equal feeling of just love and warmth and joy and incredibly organized, beautiful events, uh, just you know, amazing film people. It's not surprising that the directors of the festival are also filmmakers. So Susan Gorell is the director of JDIF and her husband is a big time um, person in the film industry. He works in the technical, like a uh, special effects part of, I mean, he does big Hollywood movies and things like that. And then she is a film producer in her own right. And she then came on board, um, about, I don't know how many years ago, the festival is 10 years old this year, uh, but maybe five years ago to just head everything up. And this was an eight day festival. It started when I screened in Galena, Illinois, on a Saturday and it went all the way to the following Sunday night and they decided they were so kind. They took all the 2020 entries and they basically combined two years of film festivals into one and they screened, I don't know how many shorts, probably a hundred or something and more like 30 features, documentaries and narratives. And they, every day they had some sort of event. They had panels they had coffee talks where you're just sitting around with one person. They had um, like parties at night. There were dances. There was a street festival all one day. There was um, movie trivia night. Like it was so fun. And there were supposed to be about 100 filmmakers there. And I do think it got pretty close to that. What was interesting about this film festival is it was, you know, the biggest one with um, in terms of all the filmmaker presence, but it wasn't too big that, you know, everybody was off in their own worlds, not really connecting, uh, but it was big enough so that you met, you know, a good number of filmmakers. The other thing that was fascinating, they put up um, all of the nominees. So there were three to five nominees in every category, shorts, narratives, docs. And they they put them up and they covered their travel uh, for the nominees. But then for everyone, they provided breakfast, lunch, and dinner in the um, filmmaker headquarters. And so the Hotel Julian, which is this beautiful old hotel from the 1800s, um, you know, they... Uh, you know, they put everybody up there. The headquarters was there. The box office was there. And we hung out together every day while we were eating. And that's how we got to know each other. And when we left, every single person, every other filmmaker that I talked to said, there's been nothing like this. We feel so bonded to each other that none of us wanted to leave. It was like this. We'd found our tribe and we wanted to go and live on this little island in Dubuque, Iowa. So, um, it was a it was a spectacular experience. I met some unbelievable people. I'm definitely going to have them on the podcast. Some of those people were going to invite Susan Gorell to come on and talk about how she created this environment, as well as some other uh, filmmakers that I met while I was there. So that, that sounds like a lot. That's my report that about like a lot that. Of fun, you because I I love movies, but I, I don't like wasting my time on films that might be good or it might be bad. I need to know in advance if, if I think I might like it. And so uh, film festivals always interest me, but just like, ah, I don't know, you're just, you're, you're taking a lot of time and 
half the films you may not like. That's hours wasted. And so I, uh, but this film festival sounds fun. It sounds like, man, this, you see some good films, see some bad films, but you'd have a good time while you're there anyway. And I didn't realize festivals could be like that. So that sounds uh, pretty cool. Yeah, it really was. And I think, um, you know, that's one thing that you ought to look at. Like right after we left, they got an award for um, one of the 50 top film festivals worth the money, worth the entrance fee. And there there are, you know, of course, different levels of festivals and the quality will be different. For my own personal preference, I really wouldn't want to be at a festival that was younger than 10 years, simply because I think it takes you that many years to sort of figure out how things are going to go. And just like we heard from Ron a few weeks ago, you know, he said when we first started out, the quality of our festivals was just let's have some films no matter what. But as time went on, the quality, you know, rose and exponentially. Well, at all of these festivals that I've been at, the quality is so high that there, I would never say there are very poorly done movies with bad sound or bad this or bad that. Um, they are all worthy to be in these festivals. Now, what's so great in particular about JDIF was they had so many ways for you to find out um, a, a about the films. They had a booklet. They had an app, which was, was phenomenal. Um, and then they had posters all over the place with, you know, pictures and descriptions about what the films were. Um, one of the ones that was most memorable to me was the film that I left the um, festival with. And it was called Into the Storm. And it was about uh, this comedian slash director. I think his name is Harold Storm, and he worked with uh, Robin Williams. And so on the front of the poster, it's Robin Williams and Harold Storm. And of course, it says on there, unknown footage of um, Robin Williams. And the, he directed Mork and Mindy. And so he had some footage of Robin Williams that had never been seen before. But it was the image on the poster that caught my eye and Sam King's eye. And we're like, we're going to go. And I was so glad I did. It was hilarious interesting. I learned some things and it wasn't, you know, anything really famous or, you know, it wasn't up for any awards, but it was certainly a, a good film. So um, I think you should feel safe if you go to a film festival that's 10 years or older, that you're going to find some good stuff. Good advice. All right. How about we shift gears and jump into the world of Le Francais? <laughs> how you yes. say it? Uh, <laughs> um, so, Okay. <laughs> I studied French for four <laughs> years, as you can tell, believe it or not. <clears throat> it and, actually, ago, but, and I've never been to France, uh, which is a regret. Yes. But it's never too late. We will come. It's never too late. Uh, so today, Christian, we are talking more about translation. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a cost to do this. There's You need time and money to do all these things. Why don't we start with you know, the on location, you know, because this is something that didn't occur to me as you're interviewing people, you may not understand what they're saying and you don't want, and you want to have a smooth interview. So uh, maybe just talk about being on location and what that was like and, and the need for a translator and so forth. Um, well, yeah. So I think that the first thing that's really important when you're on location is um, having a good interpreter, obviously. And I will make the the distinction between the interpreter, which um, 
which can be synonymous with a translator, but interpreter is more of um, translating the speech, so orally. Um, So simultaneously on the spot, um, translating as the interview goes along. And um, whereas a translator, I'm going to use more in the written written translations. Um, And so you can have, you know, and a lot of people do both roles. You can be a good interpreter and a good translator. Um, Michelle Phoenix, for example, was great at both. Um, So it's important, though, especially when you're doing a lot of interviews and formal interviews to have a great interpreter. So that's just really important. And like we said, you know, Michelle Phoenix just kind of knocked that out of the ballpark. But it's also important, I think, on the crew to also have people who um, speak both languages. So not only, you know, having a good interpreter for interviews, but you also need to have um, crew members that speak both languages because there are always going to be problems (laughs) as we as we encountered lots of times. But it's also to help create opportunities, I think, Um, you know, finding talking to local people and and getting entry into certain places where you, you know, maybe you can't normally get into because, you know, you you don't speak the language. So um, I think that was really important also to have um, bilingual, not necessarily bilingual. You don't have to have people that speak fluent language um, in the country where you are, but just need enough to be able to get by and to handle problems or create opportunities. Um Kind of like, you know, for example, even. Can I give an example about this? (laughs) Sorry, I did not mean to interrupt you. There's sort of this lag. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it was interesting. Um, When I first contacted Flo Boucherie and she and I were talking um, there, we could understand each other to a degree because Flo spoke some English. But it was very difficult to make a lot of progress quickly. And interestingly enough, it wasn't until a year later or so when I actually went to France and we were in the middle of production that I realized Flo did not understand me ever as well as I thought she did. So she would say, yes, 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 or, oh, I understand. But I would come to find out later, she didn't really understand completely, or she missed some nuances, or she didn't get it at all. And I was so thankful when Michelle came on the project, she was a wonderful go-between, which was awful for her sometimes, completely dreadful, um, between Flo Boucherie and I, because she could fluently speak uh, both language, understood both cultures, and um, that was incredibly helpful. And she was able to, in a sense, work as my translator um, interpreter between myself and like all the venues and all the officials before we ever even got there. Um, but I will say one of the things that I found that was different between Michelle Coupe and Michelle Phoenix is Michelle Coupe, her strength is working methodically, slowly, meticulously, um, and that works really well in written translation. She, She excelled in that area, and it's clearly her strength. Where I feel like Michelle Phoenix's strength 
was verbal translation. She could switch very, very quickly between the two languages. And that was a skill that was really needed at that time. Would you not agree that there's there were two, you guys had different yeah, strengths definitely. in that translation. Yeah, and I think that is important. World. You know, somebody who interprets, um, they have to be quick. Um, they have to have a good memory. Um, and so um, me, you stick a camera or a microphone in front of me and I just kind of panic and, and kind of get tongue-tied. And, and so Michelle Phoenix, I think, was much better at that. Very responsive, very quick, um, able to focus and concentrate. And, and so she did that really well. So where my strengths are, are more in written translations. Um, and so that's... Um, that's why it worked out. Now I can interpret, you know, like on location, I did great. I could, you know, intervene for people, but formal, more formal interviews, that just wasn't my, my strength. So, and, um, but it's always good. And like I said, you know, too, you know, for example, like when you're having to stop traffic or do crowd control, I mean, it's, it's important to have people who can speak the language I, you know, we were doing scenes. And so as soon as you try to stop a car, you know, so you hold up your hand to, you know, to stop a car and immediately you see the scowl on people's face, like, Oh no, I want to go. And so if you can't sit there and tell them, you know, that's why you're holding them up, then they get really frustrated. So it actually, a lot of times would work to our benefit because, you know, would stop a car and be like, Oh, you know, sorry to bother you, but we're just, you know, finishing up a scene. We won't be that much longer. And, um, you know, seen in a film and then immediately people get engaged, you know, they're like, oh, a film, what kind of film? And they're interested. And and so um, and whoever had that great idea to have the postcards to hand out to people. So then you get somebody interested in the film, you know, oh, go check us out. You know, here's a card about our film. So you actually win supporters that way as well. It's, it's really so th- it's just it's just really good to have people on your crew on location that that speak the language as well. Uh, that that's reminding me of um I, I worked for a short time i did some pa work on a couple of reality shows and um some indie movies and i did one where we went to kent illinois has anyone ever heard of kent illinois nope where is it north south it, it's up north near rockford um it's a town of 79 mm. people <laughs> i think i know why <laughs> and, you haven't heard of it yeah after, after um, and so we were people, shooting heard of it but yeah, yeah, yeah. If if it had that one more. Um and so we were shooting, we had to shut down this long road and I didn't even know what it was called. I was just one of the people manning the barricade to make sure that nobody came through because we were doing a driving scene on this really long road. And so we blocked off all these crossroads. And someone pulled up and they were in a, in a truck and they go, "What are y'all doing?" And I said, oh, we're, we're, we're filming a movie. Um, so we had to close down the road. Um, it'll be open around eight tonight. And they go, this can't road. You can't, you can't close Kent Road in Kent. And I said, wait, I thought that was Kent Road. And he goes, yeah, Kent Road crosses Kent Road. <laughs> and I still, to this day, have never been able to figure out if it's actually called Kent Road. <laughs> I have it pulled up on Google Maps because I was like, okay, did they fix it? Did they change it? But as far as I know, Kent Road crosses Kent Road and we closed Kent Road, but they were on Kent Road. And so they were very upset. Um, but apparently uh, the entire town came out and, and watched the movie when it when it came out. Um, they they went and did a showing for them because they'd been such a good little town. And so that's, that's totally true. It's like 
if I hadn't been able to speak, <laughs> you know, the same language as these people, even if it had a country twang, it would have not, yeah. it wouldn't have gone nearly as well because they were already I, upset I don't, I, and it would have been I don't even understand worse. the country twang. Did you say it was north of Rockford? Yeah, I don't know how, but they, I mean, it's it's a it's a farm town. So I don't know how they totally had a country twang. And I don't know. It was it was weird. <laughs> it was a very surreal place. <laughs> well, you know, that image and, you know, Michelle, it brings me back to when we were fi- um, shooting those scenes in, um, yeah. you know, in St. Marie Dumont or St. Mary Glees, where we had to shut down. We had these big, big scenes with the trucks and all the people and. To your point about having to have a lot of people that spoke the language, we had so many different places that we couldn't all be in the same place. So, you know, maybe there were three different crossing places that we had to shut off. And so we needed people to uh, speak to drivers in those different places. So. So, yeah, I mean, the first takeaway is there are two different kinds of interpreters. Uh, You know, one could be stronger at the, you know, verbal as well as on camera. The other might do better in written and interpersonal running, you know, interference and things like that. Um, And you really do need more than one or two on your team if you're going to do an international film project. And if you, you know, I guess if you don't have contacts, um, you know, I would start locally um, with the town where you're going to be filming or the city hall or the tourist office and, um, you know, just ask for help um, or have them, you know, identify people that can, that, that can, you know, that are bilingual or can speak English. Yeah. And just like in the United States, I've discovered that every country, every town has a film office, uh, usually in the largest city, but sometimes in the smaller ones, they're just as used to films coming over internationally as they are here in the U.S. So I would start with that or the tourism office. Good call. All right, Josh, what's the next Let's question? Let's talk about post-production, um, transcribing, you know, once you've got the interviews and and you are, you're putting your film together. There's all kinds of things we could talk about, transcribing interviews, something with a time code. Uh, maybe, I don't know, Christian, maybe you could guide us a little bit. Just the beginning of you've got all this footage, you don't understand a word of it, now what? Yeah, so one of the things I would say about this is before you start your production, please make sure you think through the post-production part of it. So, and make sure that you plan, particularly in a dual language film, that you plan into your budget all of the different things that you're going to need. And so you need to have a very good post-production process for how you're going to handle all the interviews um, that you've got. So we did not do that. That was one of our big problems as we were trying to put that together all at the back end. And that was a bad decision. Uh, it threw us off budget. It threw us off time. We didn't. We had to figure out and invent something at the last minute. Um, so I would say do your due diligence. And the first thing that you'll have to do is when you have interviews, you're going to have to have them transcribed in the language that, you know, that you're filming in. So uh, the first thing to do is just transcribe the interview. And you do need to have the interview, the whole interview transcribed. And the reason for that is this. It is a lot quicker to go through a sheet of paper of the interview 
and read and highlight the sections that you want, as opposed to watching through every second of the interview. So that's the main reason for transcribing. You can read through your interview, you can highlight some certain sections, and then you can know that's the pieces, those are the pieces we want to pull out of this interview to put into this film. And you don't have to spend time watching it and figuring it out in the edit. So that's the first one. Always make sure that you have a transcription. And uh, there are, you know, uh, services that do that for you for a fee. Um, however, that does not mean that they are good. Sometimes they have services that then will do the correcting of the translation on top of that. I would highly suggest that. Um, and then once you have the transcription, then you're going to have to give it a tr to a translator to have them do it. Um, so, Michelle, why don't you talk through this um, part of it? Yes. So, um, important that it needs to be transcribed in, in the original language. And with the time code, um, and I'll tell you why, too, original language is, is for also for the editing purposes. So, a lot of times, you know, if Christian would read through an interview um, and pick out places, um, it's just so much easier. So she's reading the English version. And so she's going to tell me, okay, somebody talked about, you know, Danny was talking about her dress, you know, in this part, I need you to go back into the interview. And so it's just so much easier if you want to have the time code and that you have the original transcription, because then it's just easier to go back in and find where she's talking about it. So if you have to, if you have the English and it's almost like you have to retranslate to go back into that interview. So it just saves a lot of time to have in, you know, with the time code, it's going to make it difficult for translating because time codes um, are four second intervals. And so when you're translating, it's, you're going to have a piece of like five words on your time code. And, um, and that's not, so that's not even a complete sentence. So it does kind of make it a little bit trickier when you're translating with your transcription with the time codes, because it's just really choppy. And so, um, and as the French are very verbose and they have much longer sentences typically than we do in, in, in English. And so it's, it's a more of a challenge to translate from a time code, but eventually you save time later because um, it's much easier to move into the editing and the subtitling phase of the translations. So, um, and if you're going to transcribe, um, again, you have those different levels of services. And um, the really basic ones, you're really going to have to go back in and um, correct the original version first before you go and have it translated. Because a lot of times we just went immediately from the transcription to the translation. And if your first uh, transcription isn't good, then you're just you're spending more time going back and correcting um, your original language. So. And let me explain, we, um, we had an issue on our team and really we only had four weeks to get our translations done. And so we, um, and I was not in charge of this at this point, but we were, um, trying to figure out how quickly to make up time. And so it was decided to use a French transcription service that was electronic. So we put that through that transcription service. And then we did just take that file 
and we put it into yes. Google Translate. And and so then you get a really really jacked up, uh, you know, English transcription. And Bill and I tried to edit off of that. Tried to have some idea because we were in such a hurry, and we quickly found out that that was absolutely impossible because without it being a very good translation, you can't really get the gist a good gist of what that person is trying to say with their heart. So you can't have a genuine, I mean, a general idea of what the person is saying. You really have to have a very specific idea. So then we had to go to Michelle and ask her to then go through all of those translations again and give us a much better translation. Well, because then there's that, you know, translating um, to just give you an idea of what's being said. And then there, you know, kind of that faithful translation that's maybe not going to come across as as meaningful. Um, But um, I think it also kind of gives you an idea as you're going through to that, the, the voice of that person though. So, you know, like we said the last time, um, you know, the problem with documentaries is that it's not scripted and they're not actors. And so um, sometimes when you have that, you know, more faithful translation, it really gives you a better idea. Okay. Is this person really coming across um, well, um, not just, physically on a presence, but also verbally. So, um, so sometimes, you know, you do have to do that sort of faithful, not very pretty translation to begin with. And then when you move to subtitling, subtitling is, is that's when you really have to make it sound good and come across and be potent for the, the audience. Um, also just to give you an idea of cost. So just for like transcribing, um, that basic, um, transcription, if you do like, um, artificial, um, intelligence to, you know, machine generated transcription, um, you know, not necessarily very expensive. You can, you know, for like $6, I think they could do 30 minutes of transcribing. So you think, well, that's not bad. But um, or they had a minute for I mean, I'm sorry, it was um, a euro 70 for a professional. um, So machine plus then quality checked. And so that was like 50. And so you're thinking, oh, a half hour, you know, 50 euros, that's not bad. But then when you have to, you know, if you have 10 hours or 20 hours, then it just, you know, it really just keeps adding up. So you've got to be careful about about that cost can really get away um, from you for the, even just for the transcription. Yeah. We had, we had 31 French interviews that were over an hour each. So then, then you, and, and, you know, honestly, Michelle was volunteering for this project. The hours that Michelle spent that she gave us free were in the thousands and thousands and thousands. I mean, um, so really you are going, if, even if you send it through the mechanical translations, you are going to have to have a, a live person to work with, and it is going to take a lot of time and you need to make sure that you include their salary up front. Unless you can recruit someone like Christian does all the time who would do it for free. <laughs> 
<laughs> I do not recommend that. I do not recommend that. It's a magical talent. That I you wish because then you feel guilty and you feel like you should be paying everybody. I'm never doing that again, just so you know. I'm never recruiting people to work for free anymore. Well, Josh, I guess we're okay. okay. <laughs> That's a wrap, everybody. I don't know. But you have to look at it on the other island, though. I mean, these are experiences that maybe a lot of people wouldn't wouldn't get otherwise. So there's um you know, there's big opportunity there as it's well. True. So but yeah, but it is, you know, but, and that's the whole thing. So budget is really going to drive um, what you're capable of doing as far as, as translations, you know, transcription and translations are concerned. Um, so either, you know, you have, you can have a lot of people and a lot of contacts that can, you know, help you out, maybe reduce the cost, you know, um, or you're going to have to go through the services and just pay, you know, a lot of a lot of money. And it depends on what kind of film you're doing too. You know, if it's a documentary nature film, you know, maybe you don't have to have a lot of <laughs> don't have a lot of dialogue there. So, but um, you don't have to translate exactly. squirrel. <laughs> and Christian, I was just thinking too. You know, when you were doing the festivals, were there a lot of, or were there any? other like dual language um, films that were up or, or awards? Yeah. I mean, there was, there were a lot of those. Yeah. There were a lot of subtitles and that's kind of what's great about indie film is that indie filmmakers are, I mean, indie film goers are more used to reading things in subtitles. I will say that I was, I feel like our subtitles were the best and everybody made that comment. So we spent so much time to make sure that our subtitles were readable, that they were large enough, that they had a dark enough background. And another thing that we did, I had people that came earlier to see our rough cuts and then they saw our final cut. They commented on how previously it was so fast to read the subtitles. It was too fast. You couldn't read everything. And now it's much better. Well, we spent a lot of time having Michelle go over and look for economy of words. Where could we cut down and use smaller words and smaller ideas to make sure that the translations could fit in a certain amount of time? Michelle, that was not easy, was it? That was definitely challenging at times. And, um, you know, again, trying not to get too far away from what the person, you know, was really saying. Um, But um, so, yeah, it was, you know, I have to say that, um, just thinking about one of my favorite stories was um, with um, Jean-Marie Boucherie. And he's a character anyway. I mean, he's always, you know, just his, his way of speaking and he throws a lot of expressions in there and he's just always kind of joking around. And so, Christian, you remember where, um, so as I was translating, there was this one part. So he's talking about the the troops coming into his grandparents' field. I <laughs> I know what you're going to say. This is my favorite story, too. I think about it every time I and see so, the film. Um, and so, yeah, so he's saying, you know, so my grandmother, you know, the soldiers are coming in. They're setting up camps. You know, they're um, got the bulldozers in and the, and the cows um, 
we're out of luck, you know, so they had to move them out. And, 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 and so as I was translating this, I was listening and I couldn't quite figure out what he was saying, something about the cows. And I was like, was it, were they, were they underwater? Were they, I couldn't just quite figure it out. And so not wanting to waste time, I was just like, okay, the cows were out of luck. Cause it sounds like something he would say anyway. And so I said, the cows were out of luck and then just moved back. And I thought, I'll come back to that later. Well, I never did for a long, long time. And then finally I came back to it and I was listening to it and I said, oh, that's what he said. So I thought he was saying something like Sulo, like underwater, but he actually said sur les dos. So they were on their backs is actually how it came out. So he said, you know, the cows were on their back, so we had to move them out. So, but anyway, Christian, like I told her, I was like, oh no, that's not exactly what he says. He didn't exactly say the cows were out of luck. He said the cows were on their backs. And so Christian was like, oh, can we keep it? Was this cow tipping <laughs> or something? Yeah, but what, <laughs> basically what he meant, and, and this is so funny because I think Michelle went back in and changed it. She finally went back in and changed it, and it no longer said cows are out of luck. And I was like, wait a minute, you can't change that. That's hilarious. <laughs> and, and because it is Jean-Marie, and he is speaking in euphemisms, and 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 the, the cows were out of luck was just hilarious to me. And so I was like, you have to put that back. And she was like, well, that's not exactly what he said. And I was like, well, what did he say? And she said, well, he just... I think he's, you know, it's yeah. like they were dead. They were, they were gone. Backs. They were on their backs. And I was like, yeah, that's not funny. We're going to leave in cows are out of luck. <laughs> they were, okay, so they were dead. That's fine. Exactly. See, they were out of luck. So we're going to go without See, this a is, luck. This is a, yes, it's still true. Exactly. It's just more poetic. So this is a little liberty. This is what happens when you watch like a, a, a story that's, you know, true. And then you find, you read the articles, you know, like, ah, this is where the director kind of, bent at the truth here and made up that thing and elaborate, you know, embellished over there. And I don't know if I can believe in this film anymore. I know I'm learning the truth. Okay. Well, I'm about to blow your mind with another one. Cause this is a little bit more liberal. We took a little bit more liberties here. Uh, so there's a scene with uh, um, Maurice LaCour and Maurice LaCour, you know, he's such an interesting character. When I first met him, he we called him a, a, a lazy talker. He doesn't open his mouth, mouth very much. He doesn't speak very quickly. He's just kind of low energy. He doesn't have a lot of expression in his face. And so we didn't really expect much from him in the edit. But his stories were so powerful because he lost his mother to shrapnel um, on the morning of June 6th. And he was only 10 years old. So... However, what we discovered in the film is that he is our humor. Everybody started laughing at just about everything he said. And we were just like completely bowled over by this. We never expected him to sort of be a star of the show. And he really was. Well, there's the story that he tells about when uh, it was it was after June 6th when the Americans are set up and these young boys that are around 10 keep doing these deals with the GIs. And so they want gum and candy and chocolate. And so they would go to the GIs and ask them for that and trade them for things. Well, at this time, the GIs were coming to these little boys saying, where are the girls? Girls, girls, where are the girls? And so this little 10-year-old boy said, well, give us chocolate and oranges and we'll tell you where the girls are. So he then says, um, 
So we sent them to Henri Laguerre's house. Henri Laguerre's sister was older. She was an old maid. Um, and, you know, she, uh, she basically, it, the way that Michelle originally translated was she was an old maid. And so they went there and she was kind of ugly and nobody, and everybody was angry about that. That's not exactly what he said. <laughs> But but when we drilled down on it, um, Michelle, I'll let you take it over from there. Like, talk about yeah, the process. So, well, of how and we that, so that's kind of the thing too. That. So, I mean, um, you know, you're you're trying not to. Uh, his story mentions somebody from Santamara, and actually, I didn't even know if that person was still, you know, around or their family was around. So you're you're trying to be delicate too, because he's calling this woman, you know, essentially and. I mean, he didn't come out and say an old maid, but, you know, he came out and said that, you know, she was she was older, not married. So, you know, you get the picture. And so. Um, so, yeah. So you have to be kind of delicate in the description. And um, and so. Um, so, yes, the boys come, you know, the soldiers go knocking on her door and she just didn't give them they didn't get a very fine reception. And I think it could have worked in either sense that either they were really surprised or she was really angry. So it was, uh, yeah. And what seemed, what when Michelle used the words old maid, which is the gist of what he says, and this gets into the whole translation thing. He basically says she was unmarried uh, and, and she was older. And so to shrink that down, right, you use the word old maid, which is what we think of it as, yes. right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Michelle. Yeah. And so for us, that also has a humorous connotation. And so when he said, you know, the, the GIs went there, knocked on the door, he says, and those GIs were not well received. Well, what could have happened was that she was angry about that and didn't want to have anything to do with them. But what I thought when I heard the term old maid was that she was unattractive and that they were not at all impressed with this young French girl. And we then went with that idea and we ended up putting up a picture of Henri Laguerre's sister, quote unquote, I'm using air quotes here, as as one that we would think is a not very desirable old maid. And it gets a huge laugh in the film. Now, is that exactly the story? Mostly. Sort of. <laughs> Mostly. But we we enhanced it to for the yeah. you know, for the humor. I'm beginning to question if sure. any of these people in the film are even real. <laughs> I, 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 I'm taking it back. It's all CGI. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, you you do have liberties in the edit. You do have liberties in the translation, and sometimes, um, you know, you want to make a good film, so you want to be faithful and true, but you also have to take into account the audience that's watching this, and are they going to enjoy it, and are they going to understand, and are they going to laugh, and lots of things goes go into making those decisions, those editorial decisions, yeah, and directorial decisions. And, and to cut out, you know, when you... When you have so much footage and you have great stories and trying to trim those down, uh, you know, it's not easy. And um, trying to make those cuts are, are not easy either. 
And, um, and, you know, there were times I know that you, Bill and I would stay up and go over, you know, certain scenes and, and, you know, just really trying to keep a lot of things and, um, but having to make the tough decisions also to, to cut certain, you know, pieces out because you just can't keep, you can't keep all of it. So. Well, and I will say too, that um, Bill and I did not speak the language. We've been over that before. So that made the edit very tricky. But what it also meant was that Michelle had to be so much more involved with our production in the edit than I ever imagined a translator for would be. I mean, there there are many times where we, Bill and I were editing via Zoom and Michelle was on the call. And she would have to review all of our edits to make it, particularly when we got better at understanding and we could edit without her, we still had to run everything by her to make sure that right. we didn't cut out a word or a phrase here or there. Um, and so for, for our particular situation, because we didn't, you know, uh, know the language, our translator was, was just part of the, you know, editorial team and she had to be inv- very involved in the edit. And, you know, that always, that went all the way through to the subtitles. So uh, she was just, she was a very important person and we could not have done this film without her. In, in, can can I say like no one way. of my favorite editing saves, which was not even due to language, really, um, you know, the one I'm talking about? See you I do. I love this. Yeah. So we yep, were... Um, yep. You know, and so sometimes I would get up in the morning and Christian was like, oh, you know, we've made some edits, you know, can you go check it out? And so I would go back in and start watching. And um, and so but at one point, you know, I came to the CEO Bauer um, scene and um, it's at the end, you know, when he's saying his prayer. And so, you know, I thank God. And and so he's going through and it's and it's, you know, you know, you're trying to hold back the tears. It's so emotional. And very emotional. One of the edits, they stop, and so they can, you know, they and and so CEO Bauer um, is after he said his little prayer, and and so you still have that emotion where he's, you know, kind of crying, and then and then that's it. And so the one thing I told Christian, I was like, "Well, where's the part at the end where he says that's a little prayer?" And um, or that's a short prayer is what he says. And it, and it kind of because it's just this humor that comes through at the end. And, you know, so I was like, I love tears, you know, laughter through tears. And so and so Christian and Bill decided to put that back in. Yeah. Which I thought was. a Yeah. I mean, that was that was such an interesting thing. And it was why I was so glad we had this third voice in our edit um, because C.O. Bauer is telling his story and he's saying, thank you, God, for letting me be alive to tell this story. And he's got these tears in his eyes and the camera is just on him for a long time where he doesn't say anything. And I didn't want to be guilty of like making our audience, you know, feel this because it's a teary moment. The audience is going to cry. And I know this. And I didn't want to like seem like we were taking advantage or milking this moment. 
uh, for the sake of emotion. Um, and then what he says after that is, that's a short prayer, by the way. I make them all the time. And it's, and, and it's Flo Plana laughs and we laugh. Everybody laughs. And, and I always loved it. But then we took it out to try to be respectful. <laughs> and Michelle's like, no, you have to have that because it really, yes, there's tears, but it makes you smile. And it was absolutely the right call. Everybody says they're glad it's left in there. And so, yeah, that was absolutely your best editing save. And it had nothing to do with translation. So <laughs> way to go, Michelle, save the film. That makes up for all the lies you told earlier in the translation. Exactly. So. <laughs> and- all right. Well, hey, as we wrap up here, Christian, is there anything that we need to announce, things coming up, go to the website? Before- oh, my gosh, there is. I just want to take a moment and I want to give thanks and praise to God for meeting some incredible needs. So I've been asking over and over again for donations for feels like my whole life now uh, to pay the people that have worked on our film. And thanks to a generous donor this week, we received $20,000, which was enough to pay all of those subcontractors who I owe, the lawyer, the colorist, the sound guy, uh, the grants guy. Uh, we I can pay all of their bills. And uh, we still need about another $25,000 to, to cover some other costs. But I'm so thankful that these individual humans who have been surviving in COVID uh, through these difficult times will be able to pay them now. So individual donor, you know who you are. We are so incredibly grateful to you. So that's the big blessing for today. Um, but you can still donate because we do still have expenses. We've received $250 in donations other than that over the last three months. Uh, so if you can make any kind of donation at thegirlywarfreedom.com slash donate, that would be welcome. The shop is always open. We're about to start selling DVDs in our shop. So that's exciting news. And we, uh, we've got some fun new videos on YouTube. So go check those out. And yeah, that's about it. Oh, right now we are screening at the Port Townsend Women in Film Festival. It's virtual. There is a Q&A afterwards. The cost is $10 for the film, $12 for the film, and the uh, Q&A. You can find out those details on thegirlywarfreedom.com slash festivals, Port Townsend Women in Film. And then um, there is the... GI Film Festival is going to be the middle of May. That's the one directly after that. So we've got some good virtual opportunities coming up for you to share with your friends, the girl who wore freedom. Awesome. Well, that's exciting news about the donation. So very cool. Um, and uh, Michelle, thank you again for being a guest on our podcast. We'll see you next week, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. never, never know. know. All right. Well, hey, uh, and, and thank you to our listeners for listening to Documentary First, where we believe everyone has a story to tell and you can be the one to tell it. Yes, you can. Bye, everybody. I got to run. Michelle, nice to see you again. (laughs) um, Can I just tell you, that's on our recording because you didn't give me a chance to stop it. I don't know. I don't know. We'll trim it. It's fine. (laughs) Or this is all in. Bye, everybody. (laughs) Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to Documentary First. We really appreciate your partnership with us. We can't do any of this without you. So thank you so much for listening, for donating, 
and for following along on our journey. If you are able to make a donation this week, we would really appreciate it. We are supported by donors who give us $100 or less, so anything helps. Also, if you're able to share the news about The Girl Who Wore Freedom with your friends and family, please do that on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or email. And sign up for our newsletter at thegirlwhowarefreedom.com. Please go to thegirlwhowarefreedom.com slash donate to make a donation today.